Hello, my name is Nick Bright, scholar of East Asian religions. And I'm Proven Paradox, a guy with a lot of questions. And you're listening to Bright on Buddhism, a podcast where we discuss East Asian Buddhism, answering listener-submitted questions from listeners just like you, and introducing concepts of Buddhism that you may or may not be familiar with in a casual, conversational setting. Enjoy. Here, are there worldly benefits to the Buddhist path? What do you mean? The Buddha rightly says that we should not pursue satisfaction of our sensory desires because we will be permanently left wanting, such is the nature of samsara. However, no good deed goes unpunished. The good are rewarded with rebirth in heavenly realms where they are blessed with good health, high capacity for wisdom, long life, and other such pleasures of existence. Right you are. I suppose it all hinges on intention. If one does good acts and studies and practices only because they want those worldly benefits for themselves, then they are pursuing self, which is delusion. If they pursue it because they abhor worldly benefits for themselves, then they are again pursuing self. The only way is the middle way. I see. That explains those heavenly beings who are born into one of the various hells. They have pursued benefits to the detriment of themselves and others, and their misguided intention has resulted in karmic retribution. And this makes sense to me. One born in such conditions has no immediate, tangible reason to improve themselves, nor do most seek to save others. It shows how karma is a trap. Meritorious karma from the past begets poor karma in the future. Exactly. That is why we seek to act without karma, as the Buddha does. It is interesting. I feel a worldly envy for their perfect bodies and easy circumstances, but I also feel a spiritual pity for their perilous place in the grand scheme of things. A sharp example of non-duality at work. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Bride on Buddhism. This week we will be discussing devas in Buddhism. What are devas in Buddhism? What is their status in the canon? How ought we understand them? We hope you enjoy. So let's get into it. What are devas in Buddhism? Devas are a class of beings which are not originally Buddhist, but which are actually natively Hindu. As you remember, the realm of devas is one of the six realms of transmigration, and their realm is the best realm out of those six. When we expand the count to ten realms, their realm ranks above asuras and humans, but below arhats, Pracheka Buddhas, Bodhisattvas, and Fully Realized Buddhas. Their position in this cosmology gives us some clues as to their characteristics. If you remember from our previous episode on Buddhist cosmology, we mentioned that beings at the lowest and highest realms have the longest lifespans. In other words, the hell dwellers in the worst of the worst hells endure the longest lifespan in those hells, and the devas in the best of the best heavens enjoy the longest lifespans in those heavens. Their lifespans being that long has to do with Hindu mythology as well, in which there are gods whose lifespans are in the billions of years. Many of the named devas in Hindu mythology, such as Brahma and Indra, are brought into the Buddhist pantheon, but there are many unnamed ones as well. In Buddhism, the realm of devas, no matter how heavenly it may be or how long its inhabitants may live, is still firmly in samsara, so there is still suffering, impermanence, and emptiness there. As such, gods are mortal. In Hinduism, the top-tier gods can't really die except in a few cases, such as whenever the universe as a whole is destroyed and then recreated as part of the cycle of time as they understand it. 
In Buddhism, however, they can die and they do die. They do, however, have many special characteristics. They have larger, more beautiful, and more perfect bodies than humans, and they have special powers such as the ability to fly or be invisible or go without food or drink. There are different types of devas, and they're sorted according to a few sets of criteria. One criteria is whether they have form or not. The devas without form are the highest devas, and we'll pick up our discussion about them in a moment. The next highest devas are the devas with form, but these devas are sorted according to whether they're free from desire and passion or not. These are the devas that would make the most sense to us in the sense that they have bodies and they act upon the world around them, as opposed to the formless ones. They are genderless and free from passions, and they live in a number of heavens according to the circumstances of their rebirth. The Suddhavasa devas are the rebirths of Anagamins, Buddhist religious practitioners who died just before they could become an enlightened arhat. They guard and protect Buddhism on earth and will pass into enlightenment as arhats when they die. These devas can be frequently seen in statues or in images guarding Buddhist temples or guarding Buddhas from naysayers. These devas are fun because they represent the more vicious and toothy side of Buddhism. The idea is that they are horrific to anybody who would do harm to the Dharma or to its practitioners, but on the other hand, they are protective and make you feel safe if you are on the Buddhist path and if you are one of the practitioners. The Pala devas are meditators who have reached the fourth jhana and remain there until they die. That means that as soon as you get to the fourth jhana, you automatically become a deva, which is a very fascinating claim to make. The Subhakritsna devas are meditators living in the third jhana. And then the final class of these higher devas, who are free from passion and desire, are the Abhavajra devas, and these are meditators in the second jhana. These devas are the most involved of the devas in that they often appear in the realm of humans to offer advice or guidance. Below these devas with form who are free from desire and passion are devas who are more like humans in that they have gender and they are subject to desire and passion. But because of their being subject to desire, the deva of desire, Mara, has the most influence over them. You will remember that the realm of humans has the right balance of suffering and pleasure to motivate human beings on the path and to allow free will to have the largest karmic result. In this lower realm of devas, the devas don't have enough suffering to motivate them on the path, and thus they lean harder into their sensory desires, which gives Mara more power over them. Interestingly, Mara himself is a resident of one of the heavens of these desirous devas, and so actually is Maitreya, the Buddha of the future. The six types of devas in this deva realm of sensory desire are as follows. The Perinirmita Vasavartan Devas, luxurious devas to whom Mara belongs. The Nirmanarati Devas, the Tushita Devas, among whom the future Buddha Maitreya lives. The Yama Devas, or as they're called in English sometimes, Devas of the Hours. The Triastrimza Devas, and finally, the Katarmaharaja Kakaika Devas. These Devas also include four types of earthly demigod or nature spirit Devas, some of which we have seen before in our sutra readings. These are the Kumbandas, Gandharvas, Nagas, and Yakshas, and possibly also the Garudas. These mythical creatures are often subservient to other devas, and they are seen reacting to the teaching whenever the Buddha preaches in sutras. For example, at the end, you'll hear in a sutra, and then the Kumbandas of the southern direction all rejoiced at the teaching. Now that we've discussed the devas with form and the desirous devas with form, 
we can now come back to the formless devas. These devas do not have bodies or a physical location, and they meditate on similarly formless objects of meditation. They do not interact with the rest of the universe at all. This fact should pose some questions. First off, they exist in samsara, and every unenlightened being within samsara, necessarily and by definition, produces karmic results. These are devas, and their karmic results are likely very good, but they are karmic nonetheless. Interacting with the universe is, as far as I know, the only way to produce karmic results. And so, these formless devas must be doing that. They must be interacting with the universe around them. According to Buddhist cosmology, and modern science for that matter, if something does not interact with the universe at all, it doesn't really exist. So, do these devas exist outside of samsara? If so, then by definition they would have achieved nirvana. But they're not Buddhas, so that's impossible. Furthermore, the mind is a sensory function, and formless objects can still be the sense objects for that sensory function. So by meditating, how are they not interacting with the universe? This is a totally open question, and the texts simply do not have an answer. My suspicion is that these types of devas existed in a cosmology which permitted their mode of existence in an uncontradictory fashion, and when they were copied and pasted into the Buddhist cosmology, the resultant red squiggly line that popped up underneath them was unnoticed or ignored. So, based on what we've just discussed, it sounds like something else is going on to me. So, just like in the Western conception of the five senses, they don't all necessarily apply universally. A blind person doesn't have sight, a deaf person doesn't have hearing, etc. It sounds like these beings only have the sense of mind in the Buddhist sense. It sounds like they are so above our station that they're limited in how they can interact with us, perhaps unable to do anything in the physical universe as we perceive it, but can be much more active in whatever space one finds thoughts. This is fairly close to the actual case. I should mention that they don't have the sense of mind in the sense that all sentient beings do, because senses are actually only a factor in the world of form, which these devas are not a part of. However, they are only able to interact with formless objects, as you say. These have to be formless objects, and only some objects of the sense of mind are formless. In truth, they do interact with those. It is complicated because some texts say that these devas can sometimes interact with us as a formless object of mind when we encounter them or when meditating. It's really confusing. I don't think there is a concrete answer. However, I do think that you're right in your suspicion that they're much more active in this formless space than they are in the realm of form. The next question on the docket is about the status of devas in the canon, and we will answer it, but only for the devas with form. I don't think it's possible to interpret the formless devas in a way that is internally consistent with the rest of the canon for the reasons that we've just talked about. Another of my pieces of evidence for thinking this about them is the idea, present in some of the commentarial literature, that they can be tempters. As I mentioned just now, in some commentarial texts and meditation manuals, these devas, formless though they are, appear to us and can be distractors whenever we're meditating. You could be meditating and be advancing really far and doing really well, but as soon as you start to feel proud about yourself for this, you fall into the trap of pride and desire and pursuit of self. 
As a result, this desire can manifest to you in your meditation in a similar fashion to how Mara is said to have manifested himself to the Buddha when he was meditating to reach enlightenment. In certain texts, it is said that you will see beautiful men and women, or beautiful devas, and they will congratulate you on your achievement in meditation, and they will want to celebrate with you, but they are manifestations of desire and they wish to distract you and to hinder your practice. The idea is that if you beat out those beings and you persist beyond their distractions and temptations, then the next beings you encounter are these formless devas who start to talk to you and tempt you in a similar but more subtle way. These devas are harder to detect and harder to deflect from your own practice. If a pretty man or woman appears and says, congrats, you've done it, let's go party together, that's an obvious distractor to somebody who is aware that sensory temptation is going to pull them off of the path. But if desire, disguised as a formless deva, shows up to you and starts telling you you have entered the realm of formlessness, which is by definition beyond the four jhanas, you may be more likely to believe them. The thing is, however, that they aren't supposed to be able to interact with the rest of the world. How are you even supposed to encounter or see them when meditating? It's a very curious, complicated situation. So this status with Davis as tempters can be another circumstance that causes the latter to being a deva leading directly into a slide into Naraka, which, you know, in my own readings, that's something that I've seen come up multiple times that, you know, the devas often end up in Naraka afterward. And if they're serving as tempters and controlled by Mara, then yeah, that's what happens, is my understanding. And also, it makes sense for devas to be tempters because Mara is a deva, right? So yes, of course they're devas. The big tempter one is among them. I'll also say, I have heard voices in my head while meditating that did not belong to me, but First of all, I was not necessarily doing Buddhist-style meditation. I was doing other types of meditation at this point. And I was also in much more dire circumstances. So I my judgment was fairly frayed. At the end of this episode, I ended up with a mental health diagnosis that had schizo in its name. So that's... From the secular guy, there is a possible secular answer to what's going on here. Exactly. It's also important to keep in mind that the realm of the devas is not yet non-retrogressive. So beings in samsara who are transmigrating and who are acting karmically and who have not devoted themselves to the path in this system, they can slide up and down and they can skip stages, like you say. So they can be born as a deva for this life and maybe even the life after that. But then they do something or they participate in something that has bad karmic results and they slide down to asuras or to humans or even skipping over all of that all the way down to the hells, narakas, as you say. So these are very complicated and very individualized circumstances for each of these devas that cause these things to happen. That's kind of the secret of karma. If you understand the secret of how, what somebody does, in what realm, in what circumstances, with what intentions, with what results, how all of that factors into their situation, then you can understand where they're going to go, where they have been, where they're going, where they are now, and 
that's sort of enlightenment. That's omniscience. You've got it. You're there. And that's sort of the, the complicated part. We've talked a lot about how karma seems to be acknowledging the fact that for the regular person, causality itself, the randomness of the universe, but also the relative continuity of the universe kind of in tension with each other, how that is kind of unknowable to the regular person. And I think that that's why we see this happening with devas. That's why even gods can sometimes, due to some sort of circumstance, fall down into a hell in Buddhism, unlike in other religious traditions. It's also interesting to me how, you know, we've talked about how you can't you can't know the taste of chocolate without tasting chocolate. And yet in this case, what you just talked about, the idea of karma's multiple and complex interactions, I can't cover the whole idea in my head, but I also see the shape of it. Like, it seems like from a... From the first layer, it seems like the thing to do is, you know, get good karma and just be a deva if you can. But after you go further levels in, you start to see, oh, but there's a slide after that. There are traps in this path. And, like, I actually do see the trap of karma that they're talking about being supported by the texts broadly. Now, like you said, there are exceptions. There are places where it doesn't quite make sense or add up, but also there are parts where it does. And that's really cool. Absolutely. So let's get back to the script here. So what is the status of devas in the canon? In the canon itself, there are a few different ways that we might look at the devas. Let's look at them for a second from the perspective of critical scholars of text. From that perspective, the original Buddhists made a very effective argumentative move. These original Buddhists took the highest ranking beings in the Hindu pantheon, which belonged to what was in some ways a competing way of thinking, and ranked them below the Buddha and below practitioners of the Buddha's way of thinking. This is a rhetorical means of saying that the Buddha's way of thinking is so superior that the human practitioners of it are even better off than the gods of that other way of thinking. However, though this perspective is valid, and though the Buddha did do this and his practitioners did do this, we should not read so much malicious intent into it, and you'll see why. When we step out of that perspective and into the Buddhist perspective as much as we can from our positions, we can see that the devas are highly revered and respected in the tradition. They protect the Buddha, his dharma, and his community, his sangha, and that is no small thing. It's possible to say that the Buddhists did not import the devas into their cosmology in the fashion that they did just so they could crap all over Hinduism. It's equally possible to say that they gave the devas an extraordinarily important role in the canon because they respected the Hindu pantheon so much, and erasure of it would have been much more egregious than what some may call sacrilege against them. I'll also point out that earlier we did say that they are devas that guard Buddhism and will pass into enlightenment when they die. So, like, it seems like there's a spectrum of devas. So... Like, it's not a matter of denigration so much as a matter of like expansion. Absolutely. And this is something that I cover a little bit in 
my solo series of episodes on other Asian religions concerning Hinduism, but from the Hindu perspective, the Buddhist community is not necessarily a sacrilegious one. In fact, the Buddha himself is said to be an avatar of Vishnu, one of the Trimurti, one of the three most important gods in all of Hinduism. And so, I don't think that the Buddhists had such a malicious intention whenever they imported this pantheon. We can't get into the heads of the original Buddhists, and we have no way to know their original intentions, but we should say that it's possible to look at the role the devas play in the Buddhist cosmology and say to ourselves, wow, they are really insulting the Hindu pantheon. But it's also possible to say, wow, they are really giving the Hindu pantheon a highly respected and important responsibility in the texts. The devas in the canon, named or unnamed, are not portrayed as stupid, they're not belittled or denigrated. They are shown to be very powerful and very accomplished individuals. It's just that they're viewed differently in the Buddhist tradition than in the Hindu one. From an entirely different perspective, it's totally possible to argue that the Buddhist devas are entirely different characters from the Hindu ones. I've read extensive studies and books arguing that the Roman gods, Jupiter and Mars and Minerva and so on, are not carbon copy imports of the Greek gods, Zeus, Ares, Hera, and so on. And so maybe the same applies here. In both cases, the names and the visage of the deities is imported and adapted, and the character and their role in the cosmos has completely changed. For example, Brahma is the creator god in Hinduism, but the deva Brahma in Buddhism is not a creator god. There is no such thing as a creator god in Buddhism. This is an example then of Brahma's name and visage being attached to an entirely new and different class of being that hardly resembles the Hindu deva that precedes it. This perspective becomes particularly strong and useful when looking at devas which are not named and are not imported from other traditions. In Hinduism, especially around the time of early Buddhism, it was possible to reincarnate into various heavens, but doing so did not classify the practitioner in the same category as Brahma or Indra. That was a level of power and divinity that was mostly inaccessible to people. The best they could hope for was realization of the unity of their soul with Brahman, the divine and ultimate reality. For more on that, check out my Asian religion series where I discuss Hinduism. The fact that Buddhist practitioners can reincarnate into devas and that they have all the characteristics we have mentioned so far indicates that their role and their position in the cosmology has been readapted in Buddhism. This is no small thing because of something we have discussed before. Ancient religion was not a matter of faith in our modern understanding of the term. It was not sequestered to the category of quote-unquote religion, which was separate from everything else in one's life. It wasn't a matter of believing or not believing. It was a social reality. It was how the world worked. It was the best answer they could come up with for the question of why are we here and why are things the way they are. So when the Buddhists come around and reinvent the role and the position of the devas and other beings we've talked about, it is similar in significance to saying the world revolves around the sun and not the other way around. When I make that metaphor, I don't want to give the impression that either Hinduism or Buddhism is right or wrong, but I do want to emphasize the radical paradigm change that results from those claims. How ought we understand devas? I'm about to offer a great deal of commentary and editorializing, and much of it is supported by Western scholarship on the matter rather than insider Asian perspectives, so don't take it to be an insider perspective, and definitely don't take it to be the complete perspective on the issue. I have emphasized over and over that these devas are karmic beings and that they exist in samsara, the world of suffering and desire and rebirth, and I'll emphasize it again here. 
They are, on the one hand, characters which emphasize to the human practitioner the worldly and sensory benefits of Buddhist practice, which can cause one to be reborn as a deva, but they are also representative of the limitations of attachment to worldly and sensory benefits. Before the idea of a pure land became so widespread, there was the idea of the heavens in the realm of the devas. Just like the pure land serves as a figurative carrot on a stick to show people how good things can be if they devote themselves to Buddhism, the heavens of the devas showed them that they could get things that they wanted, like long life, perfect bodies, luxurious living, and more if they practiced Buddhism. However, as we mentioned before, just because they are in a higher realm does not mean that they are any further on the path necessarily. There are devas who have never heard of the sutras, and they have never heard of the Buddha, and they're in the realm of the devas simply due to having done good enough things in the past to improve their karmic situation to the level of the realm of the devas. There are even naysayers against the Buddha's teachings which can attain the level of devas. In the Buddhist system, they are destined to bounce up and down in the realms of rebirth until they yoke themselves to the Dharma and attain enlightenment and become an arhat. However, there are some beings out there, even in the realm of devas, that do not ever do that for one reason or the other, and they are called achantikas, and we've talked about them before. It could be because they are naysayers, or it could be that they're unaware of the Dharma, or it could be some other reason, but one way or the other, they don't ever reach enlightenment, even given immeasurable time. Belief in the existence of the true textbook Ichantaka is eliminated by such Mahayana doctrinal innovations as Buddha nature and original enlightenment, but there are some schools out there that still hold that they exist, and that it's only possible to know if one is Ichantaka or not if you yourself are a Buddha and you're aware of everybody's karmic status. All in all, these devas are an interesting bunch of beings. I think that their initial existence in the Buddhist cosmology is a result of the Buddha preaching to people who held the Hindu cosmology as a given. The Buddha had to speak the language of his audience, who truly believed that the nature of the universe was like that. But as Buddhism developed over time, certain doctrinal spaces that allowed certain types of devas to exist were inadvertently closed. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Bright on Buddhism. Join us next week where we will discuss ashras. What are ashras in Buddhism? What is their status in the canon? How ought we understand them? We hope to see you there, and thank you very much for listening. See you next time. Thank you for listening. My name is Nick Bright, scholar of East Asian religions and voice of hearer. And I'm Docs, editor, question asker, and voice of hermit. And this has meant Bright on Buddhism. Thank you for listening. If you like our podcast, or if you have a question you'd like us to discuss, we'd love to hear from you. Please consider leaving a comment or review, subscribing, or joining us on social media. Email us at bright.on.buddhism at gmail.com, or find us on Mastodon at brightbuddhism at mstdn.party. As always, citations and resources for this episode can be found in the show notes. Thank you.